Thank you for downloading this podcast from Pardes, North America. This episode of the Pardes Parsha podcast features Rabbi Alex Israel and Aviva Lauer on Parshat Veishlach. For the latest episode of the Parsha podcast, please visit elmod.pardes.org. And now, Rabbi Alex Israel and Aviva Lauer. Welcome to the Parsha Podcast. My name is Alex Israel. Delighted to be with you. I'm Aviva Lauer. I'm also so glad to be here. And we are going to discuss Parsha by Yishlach, which one might say is sort of one of those nail-biting parshiot. As we see Yaakov return from exile, Jacob is returning from exile, and he is going to have this confrontation with Esau, with Esau, and he is terrified He's really scared, and he's he's scared that as he hears that Esau is approaching, that Esau is going to that there's going to be a mass slaughter, women and child, that Esau is um, aggressive, menacing. The last time they met was that moment 22 years ago when... Yaakov had stolen Esau's blessings. And now we read in the opening verse that Jacob sends messengers by Yishlach Yaakov Malachim Lefanav El Esav Achiv Atzar Seir Sedei Edom. Yaakov makes an approach to Esav. Esav's already living in his own land, in the land of Edom. And he says, I've been living in, with Lavan and I've been very successful. I want to say hi. I want to find out whether we can get along. So this is the opening of the parsha. So Aviva, what do you have? What do you What are you thinking when you're when you're reading this whole episode? This tension between Yaakov and Esau. Well, you raised a really important point when we were discussing this earlier, um, which is something I've never thought about before. Why did Yaakov decide to actually go see Esav? In fact, it was a real, um, it was not where, he did not have to go in that direction. It was out of, Right, you know, the route that he's going is he's coming into the land of Israel. He goes to Shechem. He wants to make it to his father in Hebron. He doesn't need to go anywhere near Edom. At all, right? So he has to go southward and westward. He does not need to make this trip. And I'm seeing it now for the first time really, really uh, vividly in Pasuk Vav, which you, you just read at the end where he's trying, he wants to see um, if he is finding favor in Esav's eyes, right? It's obvious somebody to find favor in somebody's eyes is they something that we hear a lot in in the Bible. But specifically here, it's like, is he gonna like me? Is he gonna be okay with me? And I think that comes back to your um your reading, possibly, of why he took that that out of um you know, he, why he, he took that circuitous route, which he didn't need to take. Why did he go find Asav? Because he, he's, he needs to see if Asav will like him all, after all this time. So he's looking for some sense of closure? Validation, closure. Yeah. He's, he's been living in exile. And I guess when he's replaying those moments, the last moments he spent with his father and his mother and his brother, 
those were just horrible moments. His mother had somehow convinced him to go and masquerade in front of his father and to take these blessings. We don't quite know how much Yaakov was in on the plan. His mother sort of like puts quite a bit of weight on him. And then one of the things which always hits me whenever I read that story in Parashat Toldot is that when Esau finds out that he's taken the blessing and Esau seems to be this tough guy, Esau just bursts into tears. He melts. It's so sad. So I'm thinking that Yaakov's living with these memories. Well, also the piece that Esau has threatened, I'm sure, very loudly, because we clearly we know that he's a loud guy. Um, he's threatened that he's going to kill. He says, I'm going to kill you. I am going to kill you. And I bet Yaakov believes it. Why not believe it? So Yaakov's coming along here and uh, he sends messengers and the messengers come back and they say, Banu which is interesting. We went to your brother to Esau. The guy, Rashi, by the way, says, you know, you think he's a brother, but he ain't such a brother to you because and he's coming with 400 men. However, when um, Yaakov, you know, gave the message as to what he wanted them to say to Esav, he calls him Adoni Esav. And there's an interesting, um, there's an interesting opposition between Adoni Esav and Achichai Esav. Like, you're you're worried you have to think about him as your master you have to like somehow um either bow down to him which you will um and we're coming back and saying you know he he's he's just your brother like i don't know there's something in there maybe that so this leads to a big question about how how we should view esau yes um because we're talking about esau and, and and we we know how the story ends we read it last year and the year before it ends off with a big bear hug eventually Esau comes and he, he sees all of his children and he's, he gives them a big hug, he kisses him. And they cry. And they cry. So this is clearly a, a, a lovely meeting in the end. But at the same time, uh, Esau comes with 400 men. What's all that about? Uh, how, how are we meant to assess Esau? Is he some sort of warlord? Is he a, is he a soft, you know, cuddly, cuddly guy? It's very, very difficult. And it's difficult because... This is fraught with many, many layers of history, um, because traditionally, Esau was Esau was Esav was always cast as the archetypal enemy of the Jewish people. Absolutely. I mean, I, growing up, I'm guessing that you grew up in the same way I did, thinking of Esav as this awful, scary figure. I mean, really, a villain, right. and of course, uh, the progenitor of of Amalek and Haman and right. Hitler and all those and uh, in, in the the rabbis basically when they talk about Esau they say you know they're talking about Rome who the people who destroyed our temple who you know so much suffering so much tears so 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 what are we going to do with Esau how are we going to look at him yeah well I, so over the years I have come to read him in the in the shot in the original text really very differently than the way that I grew up. Um, I mean, I see him as kind of this, I guess, say bumbling, but like this gullible character who, when you talk about a bear of a man, a bear of a man can give you a bear hug. You know, he's kind, he, he's maybe a little bit sweet, not particularly intellectual, and he's easily manipulated. Yaakov is the one who manipulates him, both with the sale of the birthright um, and at the end of our, our episode now with 
that we'll maybe get to where Yaakov says, oh yeah, I'm going to follow you later. Really not meaning it at all, not intending to, but Asaph, you know, you can imagine him saying, okay, great. Okay. You know, he, he, the, cent- the centerpiece of this, of this parish or this lead up to the encounter, which is a very slow lead up is that Yaakov is under the impression that if he sends him enough gifts, he'll also, you know, soften. Right. So he he's a guy who can melt, who can soften. Um, and I, you know, I feel I feel kind of bad for him. Uh, and I feel bad for him because not not because what happened to him. I mean, that that's not that's not for me to feel bad for him, but a little bit in the way that we think about him for all the years that I thought about him one way. I feel a little bit bad about that. And 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 there are definitely Midrashim that that depict him as a good son, as a um, as a respectful son who who honors uh, Yitzchak, who tries to do good by Yitzchak. When he figures out that he's married the wrong kind of person, he goes and he finds somebody who's uh, who's better, who who would find favor in his parents' eyes. Like he's trying, he tries. He misses the mark, but he tries. Wow, that's a fascinating reading reading of Esau. So if that's true, um, that Esav is really, and we were reading a Midrash together just before, where Yaakov is so afraid and he says, what am I afraid of? I'm afraid of the fact that Esau has been living in Israel and I've been living in um, a, a abroad outside the land of Israel. And therefore he has an extra degree of her, holiness and virtue. The zechut, the he merit. The z- he's merit of Eretz Yisrael. He's the one who's been serving dad dinner for the last 22 years. And I've been living by myself in my singles apartment or with my family. And so that he's been looking after our parents while I've been away for 22 years. He must have a lot of virtues. Maybe he has more virtues than I. Yeah, there's a lot of merit. And I think probably a lot of us can um, really relate to that. You know, one one family member, one child living near the parents and the other one not. I mean, it's they do a lot, the, the children who live near the parents. Okay, but then we've got this whopping huge negative view of Aesop. So where so where where is that all coming from? Where is that all coming from? So so I'm gonna I'm gonna mention something which I, I heard from a student of mine who now works at Pardes, Ilana Gleisha Bloom. She was working with some students and actually presenting this positive image of Esau to her students and that maybe he does do Kibbutz aim. And they kept on going back to this opening scene in our parsha where Jacob and his family are making their way to the land of Israel. And Esau responds by coming with 400 men. And they said to her, yeah, but he's got 400 men with him. And she says, yeah, yeah, but he's, he's, he doesn't have an evil intent. And they kept on these, I don't know what they were, second or third graders were saying, he's coming with 400 men. And suddenly she realized that there is a certain, how should I call it, playground politics, that if you come with a whole gang of people, these seven and eight-year-olds know that you're up to trouble. Why is Esau coming with 400 men? Is it, it, Yaakov presumes that he's coming to be attacked. And this malevolence, he's, he's remembering, he's still got ringing in his ears, just wait till dad dies and I'm going to kill you, I'm going to murder you. And he doesn't even know whether his father's still alive. Maybe his father's died. Maybe this is the moment. There's definitely not just something. I I I, I think that the read of four hundred men as being malevolent and um, incredibly uh, a, a purposeful show of force. I think that's probably a really good read. Although there's something in the back of my mind, something that I'm 
you know, from something from a TV show that I probably watched recently where um, a, a brother was trying to prove to his other brother, like, look, I, I succeeded. Look, I'm, I can be just as good as you. I think it maybe could have come out of this, this feeling of uh, on Aesop's part, like Yaakov, I, I was always, you're really the, you're the strong one. I'm the bumbling gullible brother. But let me show you, I'm good too. Wow. I, I was successful. So you're saying that maybe Aesop brings 400 men um in order to like be uh, uh, to, to, to sort of boost himself yeah to show you know i wasn't a failure i've succeeded look at me i've succeeded in life you've succeeded i've succeeded yeah well i mean i just think it's important to say at this point um something again which we were talking about before that whenever you read rashi and whenever you read the midrashim about asaf the truth is that the rabbis aren't talking about asaf they're talking about the romans Later on, they're talking about Christianity. And this was a very, very aggressive relationship where Jews really felt as if um, they were under persecution. This was the enemy. And once you say Yaakov represents the Jewish people and Esau represents our persecutors, suddenly you can say the worst things about them because you're not really talking about Esau, the biblical character, once you've put that personification, you've put that characterization, you've put that typology onto Esau, then they just represent everything that's bad in the world. And therefore, when we look at our traditional commentators, it's very difficult to get a raw textual, what we might call shut perspective of the persona of the individual who we know as Esau. And so it's so interesting that if in the pshat, we were reading um, Asav as the manipulatee and Yaakov as the manipulator. In fact, it, the Midrashim turn that around and make Asav a very um, serious manipulator, a hypocrite. Um, I think manipulator is um, better than hypocrite because a hypocrite sometimes does things without planning them. They're just hypocritical the way they are. But a manipulator plans to be that way. And they talk about Asav as that type of person who pretends to be religious. And he talks with his father about halachic questions. But in fact, he doesn't care at all. Um, he acts like a pig, the Midrash talk says, um, pretending to be kosher because um, a pig has one of the um, choose its cud split hooves. It has its hooves are split, but doesn't chew its cud. But it emphasizes, hey, look at my, you know, look at my my, my feet. feet. I am so kosher while hiding the fact that um, it isn't really kosher. So it's he's trying to um, be somebody that he's not. He's trying to pretend that he's somebody that he's not in order to get what he wants. And so that's like the exact opposite of who he seems to be in the pshat. It's just so fascinating because in the pshat, frequently Jacob is the one who is the uh, schemer and the one who presents himself as different. He tricks us, and what actually the midrash is doing is flipping it. Exactly. I mean, in in the text, Yaakov, you know, what does it really mean if it's Ein Kuf Vet? There, it's connected also to Ein Kuf Pei, the idea of Lakof. You know, yeah. he's always trying to like get around somebody and get what he wants. Um, and he's, he's, he's that manipulator. Right, that's what he does. Uh, well, that's what he does to, to Lavan, to Laban, when he won't pay him his proper wages. So he finds a way of getting it the other way. He, he gets tricked, but he's, he's good for the game. 
right? I think there's even a Gemara Megillah which says exactly that, where uh, when he he's about to marry Rachel and they say, uh, and Rachel says to him, you know, my father's going to trick you in the wedding. And he goes, don't worry. If he tricks me, I know how to trick him back. Oh my God. <laughs> the three-card Monty man. Um, yeah, wow. So, so back to Rome for a second. Um, this idea of being manipulative and pretending that they are something that they are something that they're not in order to achieve whatever their aims are. Um, it sounds from the Midrash, from the Midrashim, that when they talk about Asab like that, they're talking about Rome like that because the the Romans came in all like, oh, you know, we're going to build, um, we're going to build roads and we are going to build bathhouses and we are going to make everything really, really terrific and beautiful and and uh, modern and not primitive anymore. But really they're coming in with their own needs and they're very much um, not thinking about the the Jews and and their needs, and the Jews are coming out and saying, "Wait, hang on, hang on. You, you're acting. You're you are such manipulators." And they're existing through this, you know, these generations of of these decades and 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 you know, many many years of being manipulated. Wow. I want to come back to something that you said before about you know hiding behind masks and who's manipulating who. And to go back to our initial first moments of our discussion, because we've got this idea that Yaakov is reaching out to Esav. And um, there's a sense that frequently uh, Yaakov is somebody who hides behind masks. He um, frequently functions in the night. He runs away from Laban, right? He hides before his father. And even in, in this story, um, the he he sends all these gifts uh, doron a sort of a how should i say it a bribe he's trying to he's trying he says it you know even bring them in waves right send them different waves he says um he says when when you meet him he say gami ne after khayakov akhorenu yakov's all the way at the back kiamar he says akhpara panav the word is akhapra which is uh, like the word kofar a bribe or in english it's like to grease your palm i i with this gift who is going before them, and when I eventually meet him, there's this sense that Yaakov is frequently afraid of confrontation, of having arguments out in the open. Instead of um, you know talking to Lavan about his wages, he'd prefer to run away in the night or prefer to trick him through some sort of genetic engineering. And even here, he initially approaches Asaf and says, we, we should really meet up. You know, it's about time. It's been 20 years. We should meet up and we should uh, get over our differences. But then he totally like backflips and says, oh, my God, he's going to kill me. Oh, my God, I need gifts. And then you have this really interesting moment where he fights the angel or fights the mysterious man in the night and he wakes up and Asa's there. Asa's <laughs> there. And even then he like is very obsequious. He bounds down seven times. But there's this interesting thing about, is, is Yaakov, on the one hand, afraid of confrontation, but on the other hand, seeking seeking a meeting? Every time he thinks about the meeting, he gets queasy, <laughs> gets a headache. What's going on there? Well, I, I think he he really is somebody who avoids confrontation. And I mean, even, even later in this Parsha, um, when in the story of, of Dina and Shechem and, and his daughter is... is is taken and assaulted and, 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 
you know, raped by Shechem and her brothers go and attack the people um, of Shechem and Yaakov doesn't get involved. He's not, you know, confrontational on his two of his sons say to him at the end, like, I, I'm obviously paraphrasing, like, it, do you not care? Like, why are you, why do you stay quiet? Why are you so unconfrontational? Why do you hide? Um, and so even after this whole episode, he still has that part of him that he, that it's really hard for him to, to be a confronter. And I, I, you know, I have a theory that we can talk about later, you know, some other time that actually it's only later on in the book of, of Genesis that he really learns that you have to stand up and be an, an upstander um, and not a, and not a hider, um, not a stand a bystander. That's the word I'm looking for. But maybe that's exactly Jacob's, um, you know, that's his flaw. And that's something that he's, you know, we're all working through things through our lives. And I find something really fascinating here where Yaakov sort of knows he needs to have this difficult conversation with Asaph. Uh, there's a lot of baggage. He knows he's got to do it. And it terrifies the wits out of him. And he's doing everything to maneuver it and maybe even to escape. The Rashbam says that uh, the, 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 the man in the night, the angel, had to come to pin him down because otherwise he would have run away at the last minute. He was literally going to cancel the meeting and send a text and say, oh, sorry, got caught up in a traffic jam, can't make it. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of that um, that movie, uh, The Runaway Bride, where, you know, finally, like, wh whoever it is, Julia Roberts, like, has to be, like, brought, you know, because she's going to run away. She has to be, like, brought to the altar. Um, yeah, he, he, it's really, really hard for him. So this, this, this brings us to the question about sometimes when you confront your ghosts when you confront your Esau you find it's not as not as menacing as you thought actually showing that human they even talk about fighting the angel Panim Panim El Panim and they actually have a meeting face to face and suddenly he finds that all his fears melt away and Esau is much more amenable is much more congenial much more brotherly than he ever imagined right um, I'm think, just thinking about the name again, the name Yaakov, and that you know somehow being being connected to to the the ankle or the you know something about turning around, turning aside, uh, and and that is his general his his natural nature is to turn away, but he turns into well he turns into Yisrael, and this idea of being a confronter or an upstander, right, a wrestler. A wrestler with angels. Yeah. So we wanted to finish this off, taking this back to the arena in which Chazal, the rabbis, talk about this. Because the rabbis have always mapped this Jacob-Esau confrontation as Jews' relationship to the world. Um, and therefore, it's fraught with a lot of baggage. But if we take this line of thinking, what we're actually saying is that sometimes, you know, we live in an era where anti-Semitism very sadly and and unfortunately has reared its head again and it's become a real topic i listened to the rosh hashanah sermon of uh, rabbi angela buchdal and she was talking about how anti-semitism has really affected young people in her community so much so that they're scared of identifying as jews on campus i don't know how many of our listeners you know have had any confrontations but one of the questions is you know how do we deal with anti-semitism do we do we are we in confrontation with it? Is it something we've got to be afraid of if we confront it? If, if, if anti-Semitism is the Esau 
right? Is there a way to turn the anti-Semitism into a friendly brother? Is it something which is going to remain hostile? Or is there some way to, to actually meet it face to face and to, to somehow douse those flames of hatred by a face-to-face -face confrontation? So Aviva, what do, you, what do you think about this? I mean, I know we don't, can't serve the, solve the world's problem here from the Bet Midrash in Paradise, but... Yeah. Okay, on the one hand, I absolutely understand anti-Semitism is real. It is out there. And um, listening to uh, amazing Pardes alum, Samantha vineker Meinrath uh, on her podcast with, um, well, on David Breifman's uh, podcast, um, Adapting, um, very recently, and she wrote a book uh, called Hashtag Antisemitism. And, you know, she said, I think also quoting somebody else that anti-Semitism will be about anything somebody doesn't like about us, you know, and it'll constantly, constantly be changing. So, you know, if we wear, if all Jews decide to wear green, it's because, you know, we wear green and how awful is that? And if Jews decide to wear purple, it's going to be, oh my God, those Jews, they wear purple. She didn't say all that. I added that part, right? So it's there and it's not rational. Totally get that. At the same time, I think that Maybe, maybe, maybe in certain situations of anti-Semitism, there can be the way there can be um, an upstanding confrontation, let's call it in the way that you described that, you know, you if you a are able to recognize that a lot of this might, you know, it's it's a fear that might not be as big that as as you think, like Yaakov had put put this, like made this huge, huge deal all these years. And then he realized, oh, actually it was in my head. This is about me, um, you know, and my fear. Like maybe that gives a person the strength when they are confronted by real anti-Semitism to say, you know, I don't think you really know anything about Jews. And I, I, you're talking about real people. You're talking about me. Do you want to talk? Should we talk about who I am? I, I I love that, what you're saying, especially the second point about like, they don't necessarily know so many things about Jews. And I'll just maybe finish off with, with a, a little episode, which in, I have a friend of mine, a friend, actually a friend of my daughter's, who's a shaliach of the Jewish agency in a campus in Madison, Wisconsin. And uh, they have confronted quite a bit of anti-Semitism there on the campus. And uh, they were at some event, I think it might have been about anti-Semitism in Chabad uh, at the campus. And in walked two fellows, African-Americans, and they walked in and they said, he was standing at the back and they said, and he said, like, you know, are you part of an organization to back us? They said, no, we heard there was something against hate and we decided to join. But we actually don't know anything about Jews. And I just watched a podcast. They have these two guys have a podcast on campus. And they literally brought him in as their guest and they said, okay, we know nothing about Jews. Start from the very beginning. Wow. <laughs> and I suddenly, maybe if I can, we can say that when you meet people, panim el panim, you meet people face to face, they suddenly, they, they, they adopt a human face instead of a mask, instead of a, a, a caricature. Um, maybe if we try and stand up and create more opportunities to meet face to face, then we are able to really encounter ourselves in our full humanity. This is not going to solve the global problem of anti-Semitism, but on a local level, it definitely is some way to go. 
Okay, and I will give you um, a, a counter incident that I just uh, went through um, two weeks ago when I was in the U.S. and I was in an, I you know go in a lot of Ubers and somehow I always end up mentioning who I am and where I where I'm from. I can't help myself. I think maybe I'm looking for a confrontation. I don't know. Um, and um, one Uber driver basically um, you know started telling me that I should really believe in um, you know I should really become a messianic Jew and um, and really, you know, all Jews and, and Israelis, like, we're, we've just done terrible things and we're just all going to die really, really soon. Oh, gosh. And I said to him, and maybe this is because I wasn't panim el panim. I was just in the back looking at him, you know, at the back of his head. And I said to him, you realize you're talking about real people here that you're condemning to death, right? Like, you're talking about me and my family. And that gave him pause for like one second. And then he continued on and on. And I realized, you know what? I just need to get out of there. That's what I need to do. And sometimes you have to be a little bit of a Yaakov. So putting that out there as well. But perhaps if I would have sat down, had a cup of coffee with him and looked him in the eye and he could have seen that I'm a real human being, maybe things would have changed a little bit. I love that because we've just seen the two um, victors of uh, explanation in the classic Parshanim of Esav, right? Is Esav somebody who can be changed, who is malleable, or is Esav perennially in this aggressive position? So there we have it. We brought the Parsha to life in a contemporary way. Thank you so much. Thank you. Look forward to future conversations. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you all for listening. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of Pardes North America. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Spotify for the latest episodes of the Pardes Parsha podcast.